it, it does go both ways. And that's why I really think sometimes it's, it's okay for us to try to question each other, teach each other and walk beside each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, consider, consider me beside and walking. I, I, I'd love to go on a conversation walk or a real walk one day, but yeah, I appreciate it. Welcome to Entanglement by Singolution, a grassroots, women-led, migrant-driven film and media arts organization situated on the occupied, traditional, and ancestral territories of the Hankmanum-speaking peoples, including the Musqueam and other Coast Salish peoples, also known as Richmond, BC. My name is Rebecca Wang, Wang Chenyi. I'm a first-generation Chinese immigrant settler hosting this podcast from the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, colonially known as Vancouver. Entanglement is a six-episode series on art, culture, and race in today's world. Through intimate conversations with artists, filmmakers, and community organizers, we explore current experiences and perspectives from the Asian diaspora. Today's episode is to walk alongside one another, messy tangles of self and society. I'm delighted to have two guest speakers with me. They are writer, activist, and PhD student Angela Marian May and non-binary, two-spirit, indigenous artist and community organizer, Manuel Axel String. Our conversation revolves around the role of personal, familial, and communal narratives in their artistic practices. We also discuss how trauma, refusal, and healing inform their research and work, a significant part of which takes place in Vancouver's downtown east side. Angela and Manuel, welcome. Would you like to first introduce yourselves a little bit? Um, sure, yeah. So this is Angela. I'm speaking from the territories of the Swasun people. And I, yeah, like Rebecca said, I'm a PhD student, but I also make art and write creatively. Um, I'm mixed Japanese-Canadian, which I think will be of some relevance to this particular episode. Uh, so most of my involvement in community is connected with the Japanese-Canadian community and Vancouver's downtown east side. Thank you, Angela. Uh, my name is Manuel Axel Strain, but you can call me Manny. And my dad is Eric Strain from Musqueam. And his stepmom was Helen Point. My great-grandparents on my dad's side are Tina Cole and Tony Point. My mom is Tracy Strain or Tracy Eustache. She is from the Shokhatmok and Sales territories. And my maternal grandparents are Harold Eustache, and Marie Lewis, 
my grandpa Harold is from a community called Chuchua, part of the Simch peoples in Shukamahulu. And my great grandparents there are uh, Christine Eustache and Manuel Eustache. And on my maternal grandmother's side, uh, my great grandparents are Rose and Ben Lewis from Head of the Lake in the Okanagan, in the Silks lands. And I'm really grateful to be here and excited to talk about this stuff. I would say I am primarily an artist, but I wear many hats and working in the downtown east side is something that I've also done a lot of. And I feel like this is really awesome because Cinevolution is in, is it in Richmond? Yes, it is. Yeah, so my family has a long history there. My great, great grandparents, James Point and Martha Bailey. Um, we actually get our name from a point that's in the Richmond area. So I think that's really exciting and I'm thinking a lot about my great, great grandpa, James Point. That's so interesting. My family also is, um, I didn't realize that Sin Evolution was in Richmond, but um, the side of my family, my grandpa and his mother were not interned in the Second World War, but my grandma's family was, and they were originally living in Steveston in Richmond. So yeah, I also have ties to that, to that particular place, part of the Lower Mainland. Yeah, Steveston. Steveston is the area. Is it? We, yeah. And, oh, um, wow. And the airport, all that part is really connected to Musqueam. Mm, yeah. Um, and there used to be a reserve on Sea Island where the airport is. Oh, wow. Um, and now my Auntie Mary Point working at the airport as the Indigenous Relations Manager is trying to restore and build uh, a better relationship with Musqueam and that airport. Hmm. And there's a lot of uh, Musqueam people that live in Richmond still. That's so interesting. I'm fascinated by the area because um, when you're trying to reconnect with your roots, you go to Powell Street in the downtown east side, you see, you see one thing. And when you go to Steveston, especially they lived on Moncton Street, you get kind of basically a tourist attraction at this point. So the, the use of the land and the treatment of the land is, um, there are certain connections, but it's a very different experience, like kind of in your body and viscerally. And I've, I've wondered a lot about what those relations with Musqueam and it, it seems like, um, like such a resource rich place for lots of different people. Um, wondered what those are like. They seem to get uh, diluted by the volume and loudness of the tourist tones in Steveston. It's so wonderful to learn the ties that you both have with um, the land of the Musqueam people. And um, I'm very excited to see how all this thinking of the land reflected in our talk today. Um, for each episode of this podcast, we start a conversation off with a relevant media artwork. 
for the theme of Messy Tangles of Self and Society. We thought Angela's 2021 creative video, Dear Community, is a perfect fit. Ever since my arrival in the Japanese-Canadian community, people have been asking for the perspectives of younger Japanese-Canadians. It took a long time for me to wrap my head around what I was feeling and thinking, but finally I'm ready to tell you. This is my perspective. Angela, Dear Community is a letter to address your own community, the Japanese-Canadian community. Through conversations with family and friends, visions of home, illustration, and all kinds of writing, it questions conventional tellings of Japanese-Canadian history, as well as the kinds of politics and futures that these tellings afford. It follows your longtime research and work on the overlap of Vancouver's Japanese-Canadian and downtown Eastside communities. But it is also a piece born out of anger and frustration can you tell us what made you feel so strongly about making a video to express your perspective? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, so Dear Community was made for and its development also was supported by the 45th annual Powell Street Festival. Uh, so Powell Street Festival is a Japanese Canadian arts and culture festival. Also in many ways, it's a form of remembrance. Palestry Festival takes place every summer um, in Oppenheimer Park in the neighborhood that our community calls Paurugai, which translates roughly to Powell Town um, in Vancouver's downtown east side. Because it was from this area uh, that the largest historic Japanese Canadian community was forcibly uprooted by the government in 1942. And so 35 years later, uh, by 1977, the first Powell Street Festival was um, conceived as this expression of like coming home um, and that spirit still like remains and informs a, a lot of the festival today. Um, Powell Street Festival has been an incredibly important organization for me um, in terms of just like forging and sustaining a connection with my community because um, for the most part for most of my life I, I was not connected with the Japanese Canadian community. But at the same time, Powell Street's location and values, and especially a few key people in the organization connected me with another community, and that was the downtown east side community. And there's a lot of really positive and meaningful overlap between our two communities, um, but there's, there's also a lot of tension. And that tension, I think, comes from three things. The first thing is that the fact remains that our forced removal is historic, and the downtown east side community's forced removal is happening now. It's ongoing. The second thing is that efforts from Japanese Canadians to remember our home have been quite successfully co-opted by governments in order to gentrify or basically clean up the downtown east side, so to speak, and gentrification then displaces people. The third thing um, is that within the Japanese Canadian community, it's it's really difficult to critique people's efforts to remember or commemorate home or even mourn or grieve its loss because of course for many people there's a lot of pain there and I'm not I'm not the first person to try to talk about this stuff um, I owe 
much of my thinking to uh, two geographers, uh, Jeff Masuda and Audrey Kobayashi, whose work has in many ways made mine possible um, and who tried to kind of like start to ask these questions before I did. So those three things, and as a result of that tension, having strong relationships in both communities can be really challenging um, and it, it hurts. Uh, but you just, then you're stuck and you're kind of like, you have to realize that you're a part of it. Uh, you're a part of this like awkward tangle that hurts. And so then you think about what you could do and this dear community is what I could do. You know, you, you speak to your own community. I'm, I'm have never lived in the downtown East side. I'm not about to, to turn around and like have that conversation didn't feel appropriate to me, but I am Japanese Canadian. So addressing my own community directly seemed like one uh, tangible thing that I could do. And, and crucially, if you watched your community, you'll notice the only way I was able to do that was with the support of several people, but especially two friends, Sho Yamagushiku and Nicole Yakashiro. I couldn't have made it without them. But that's basically what it is, really. It's, it's this anger and frustration is a product of me living in this tension between two communities. I care both of, about both of them a lot. Um, and an expression of my, it's, it's me trying to handle that uh, experience of tension. I just basically turn and face my own community and, and try to say some stuff, even if I try to do it lovingly, even if I'm making critiques. Yeah. Wow, Angela, that was really thorough. I'm just trying to like digest it all. <laughs> I think there's a couple things I want to say before we get into this. My mom worked in the downtown east side for a very long time. And I remember uh, when I was when I started working in the community, um, I went to some of my family members and I asked them about the history that they have to that place. And I think the one story that stuck out was that uh, my great grandma on my dad's side, Tina Cole, I heard stories that, that she used to get in a canoe. She would go to the, uh, from the North shore to, you know, that area there. And she would bring things for people. And so she had stuff that she would give away for people. And I think the first thing I noticed when I was watching Dear Community was sort of the, what was missing for me was, was that piece about, you know, the Musqueam, the Squamish, or the Tsleil-Waututh. Mm -hmm. I, I was, that was what I noticed right away after watching it. I was like, oh, there's no mention of us. And mm -hmm. this isn't a critique and I say that because, you know, as a person working in art, I think we could be overcritical. And the word critique, it has a certain energy to it that doesn't sit right with me. And mm -hmm. so for me, this is more like I want to I teach you something. Mm -hmm. And that's that we have a strong history there mm -hmm. um, that was left out and it's not a competition I'll say and it makes sense we're talking about messy tangle of self that you can make <laughs> uh, uh, this dear community about you know that community of yours um, but I think uh, it's interesting that 
you know, we, we kind of, we walk together and we walk beside each other in this. The one thing I want to say is that uh, there are, there are names for that neighborhood that aren't the downtown East side or, or Powell street. There are other names for that. You know, C's, C's Weiss told me the name. I think it's Laklakai mm-hmm. is the Squamish name. And so my, my great grandma being from Squamish, I think she would have resonated with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Musqueam has its own names too. Um, I don't want to butcher the pronunciation, but I'm going to give everyone a website. So if you're listening, write this down. It's place name map dot musqueam dot bc dot ca once again that's place p-l-a-c-e name n-a-m-e map m-a-p dot m-u-s-q-u-e-a-m dot b-c dot c-a and so if you go there there's a map for the different place names that we use and we recognize in all sort of the the metro Vancouver area. So that was the first thing I noticed. And then the second thing I noticed when I talked about critique was that I think it's important to remember that, you know, we kind of have to walk beside each other and, and help each other along when we do this work and make sure it comes from a really nice place. And for me, critique is... It's almost judgmental for me. So I guess that's the only thing is that you remember that it is not my community that's gentrifying the place. I assume mm-hmm. it's, I don't know how you feel about that, Angela, but it's a question I had. Do you feel it is your community that is gentrifying the downtown east side? I think that's, I mean, my thoughts are kind of flying all over the place at the moment, but that's my feeling in it, basically. I think it's it's never it's or it's always there's always some risk in saying X community is doing Y like there's always complications there but I do see when I look through archives and stuff I do see like a pattern of efforts from my community which seem like really rooted in a in some cases like a very genuine effort to commemorate but the city of Vancouver has frequently managed to turn that into something quite different. And so there's like a, there's a combination of forces that I feel like, yeah, it's, it's really about complicity and culpability. And I think your observation about, you know, not me, not even mentioning like actual nations whose land that has always been is another expression of that, like just how you learn to talk about land in a certain way or place in a certain way. And for for some of us, like in the Japanese Canadian community, the intervention has been to resist the place name Japantown. Um, but so it's it's uh, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but it's it's even more to the point, I guess, that then I would go and miss place names that are crucially important for the communities who've always been there yeah but as far as like do I think Japanese Canadians are gentrifying I don't think that you necessarily walk onto Powell Street and see see that happening right before your eyes at the moment but I 
I have a little bit more of a behind the scenes look and I've been to different meetings and I guess if there's not tangible action happening, the level of um, attachment to certain forms of commemoration, I think that's, there's a, there's like a standing risk of that, I guess, from my community. Yeah. And the other thing, thing I want to say that I always think about when we talk about these things in this neighborhood is that when we think of gentrification, I think it often gets equated to a system of class. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I always equate it to on top of, you know, a system of class. It's actually just colonialism mm-hmm. um, in a sort of new way that people maybe aren't familiar with. I think there's a term for it that Glenn Coulthard coined, which was herbs. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think a lot about that because that all that the tearing down of buildings and putting new buildings in, or there's, there's no sort of, um, I would say active consent or consultation with Musqueam or or Squamish or Tsleil-Waututh. Plus on top of it, you think about the area being uh, largely urban indigenous, it becomes more apparent when you realize that not only are the host nation communities not really involved in the processes in the development of that area or the ongoing development of that area, it's also negatively impacting many, many urban indigenous people who are at, the, at various different intersections, whether it's gender and race or sexual orientation, economic status, uh, disability. There's a lot of urban Indigenous people that intersect in those ways that are there that are being negatively impacted on top of all of this. Mm-hmm. It's really just a, a gentrification is colonization. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a really useful analysis this I think um I welcome this kind of response and this I'm excited about it by this conversation because I, I hope that we can get to this maybe later in the podcast I appreciate what you say about critique I don't think that what you're doing feels like a critique it feels like definitely some teaching but also just thinking seriously about this thing that someone made in this case I made the thing um, it's really generous to to have a honest and authentic conversation about the kinds of stuff that that thing puts in the world. Yeah, because I think my way of thinking a lot of the time is um, where I'm getting to at least, or I'm trying to get to at least, is sometimes the individual isn't the system. <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. an individual c- can represent a system, a, a oppressive system, but many times I feel like individuals are are not always you know, they don't represent these systems. And so that's got me a long way. There are times where, yes, definitely individual does represent a system for me, but <laughs> most of the time I find it's not usually that experience. And honestly, Angela, I think it's really helpful to have this conversation on this this podcast. A way I would have preferred to do it is probably not, but, you know, there's no time. But <laughs> it feels good to discuss yeah, and I'll say yeah. it goes both ways. I've seen many, um, and my mom has stories too of, of different 
urban indigenous people being laterally violent to those that aren't indigenous mm. in the area, right? So it, it does go both ways. And that's why I really think sometimes it's it's okay for us to try to, you know, question each other, teach each other and walk beside each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, consider consider me beside and walking. I, I, I'd love to go on a conversation walk um, or a real walk one day, but yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mary. Now, Manuel, for the past few years in your art practice, you've gone from referencing your own experience to focusing on shared experiences through collaboration with your relatives to recently thinking of the vast diversities of non-human relatives, such as plants, water, air, wind, and almost removing yourself in that sense. Can you tell us what inspired this transformation in your art making? I think it was probably um, first and foremost, spending time with my mom and my dad and my, you know, my siblings and my cousins and aunts and uncles and realizing that all that I've gone through, they've gone through with me. I think that was a huge piece of it. And sort of recognizing that, you know, we are there for each other in many ways that I started to notice that a lot of non-Indigenous people aren't there for their family. And I think that goes back to how we've always lived, you know. I think that Coast Salish people lived in large, you know, we lived in large extended family houses. And I started looking at my life and, and trying to see the trickle down effect and realizing like, oh yeah, like, I grew up with, you know, different aunts or uncles or cousins moving in to our house at different times, sometimes for years, sometimes just for a few months. But there were always people, even to the point now, there's there's friends too that, you know, we kind of took in or my dad would make and my mom would make the space at our house for them. And then I started realizing that I've been through so much and they've been through it too. And then when I started to think expansively about that, I started to think about my other Indigenous friends that also have these experiences that I've had. And then realizing that, oh, like what I'm experiencing is actually what, uh, sort of like the chaos of the world is also what our, our plant siblings are going through too these hectic and chaotic times that I've lived in my life. I'm not alone in that, even as a human. Then I started thinking about the responsibility I have. You know, it's a, a, a dear friend and relative, Carlene Thomas, when she introduces herself and she says her grandparents and, and her parents, like I did when I started, I learned listening to her that, that it's a reminder to myself about the responsibility I have in this world. So when I name them, I, I, I recognize my responsibility to, to my relatives, which is primarily, I would say, my family. 
And then I would say the extended family. And then I'd say other people and, and plants and animals. And it just keeps going. And it felt like to just be making artwork that's reflective of myself, it almost seemed empty <laughs> at times. I just sort of realized that myself is not me anymore. You know, I have a self, but it's far more than that. Myself extends to my dad and my mom and my, now my niece and nephew. That me as a person is them as a person. Now I'm sort of thinking about how to conduct myself and how to be. And I think about the animals and, and the water and the wind. And it really becomes a form of governance. And, and there, it's at the top, you know, because as we've seen in the past few years with the forest fires or recently with the flooding, humans, we think we're on top, but we're really not, especially water. Water is so important and it really does govern us and we have to respect that. And if we don't, I don't know how much longer we'll have, but if we think about forms of governance in Canada as sort of this like constitutional monarchy is what we have this connection to, I often think about, well, first and foremost, we have to think of instead of the queen as this head of state, I think we've got to think about water or land as a part of that. And then as we go down, then the Indigenous people whose land we live in, they need to be sort of underneath that as representatives of that. That's kind of how I've, I've gotten where I've gotten to. And I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. It's just sort of the thoughts I've had. And, and what does it mean to remove myself and think about others? But beyond that, think about how my experience is shared with others and the expansiveness of what they can create. It's a good question. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. No, um, definitely our previous conversation inspired this question. And I find... It's really interesting to think of how expensive the notion of self can be. I think it was towards the end of Dear Community when, Angela, you were walking back home and reading a Sento poem. Sento poem is a poem made of other poems. You said something like belonging doesn't necessitate possession. I think it applies to Manuel's point of um, seeing the natural elements as forms of governance. We can all feel a sense of belonging to nature, but it doesn't mean we own it. But yeah, many mentioned responsibility a couple of times. We, we definitely bear the responsibility of caring for it. Yeah. I I did read a Sento poem at the end of Dear Community, but it was my friend Nicole who, who was kind of talking through some thoughts that she was having and, and kind of made the observation, that, which I think is accurate, at least in our community, the Japanese Canadian community, that everyone is like really searching for belonging after um, the Second World War and whatever, the dispersal, everyone's quite fractured, everyone wants to belong and 
um, property is often the lens through which people think that's going to happen. And I, I think that kind of, in a certain way, gets at the connection that Manny was pointing out between, well, connection or sameness, um, overlap between colonialism and gentrification. Like everyone thinks the belonging is going to happen when you like own stuff and especially when you own property um, lots and zones and maps and all those kinds of grammars and languages and images and there's there's so much there's so much going on even if I just if I think for like a one flash of a moment of being an Oppenheimer all of the things that Manny mentioned are critical to that moment you can feel if it's the summer dry grass beneath your feet you can hear seagulls you can hear the water lapping at the inlet probably you can feel wind Um, those are fundamental parts of that place above and beyond what we insist on putting on top of them yes so in short i agree but i'm seeing all kinds of connections here dear community i am worried that our own sense of self is so precarious, so paper thin, that we have become accustomed to protecting it at all costs. Even if that means abandoning our neighbors, at least to suffering, often to death. And I'm worried because to abandon, or at least mostly abandon our neighbors on the one hand, and to proclaim never again and justice in our time on the other hand is to kid ourselves. It seems to me that we so desperately want an identity, a community, a place to belong, or at least something to be, that we have clung to Japanese Canadianness, whatever that is, and actually foreclosed other opportunities to grow. Angela, the majority of visuals in Dear Community is illustration done by you. Um, For privacy reasons and limitation of resources, you couldn't take a camera with you and film people when they talk to you. So in a way, many of the creative elements of the video were born out of a necessity. Do you think there is a similarity between the way you made Dear Community and your activism work? You said before that it really grew out of necessity. Oh, man, these questions. Yeah, that's that's a good question, too. Um, you know, I want to have something like in these kinds of times and important conversations and podcasts and meeting new people, I want to have like, wise stuff to say or like sound like I know what I'm talking about but the truth is I'm just making it up as I go and trying to like not be super terrible along the way like I'm human and we all make mistakes and have shortcomings but yeah I I think the through line that I hear you drawing this this necessity piece one way of thinking about it is just necessity, but the other way is just resources. I mean, like friendship. Friendship is a huge part of my life. And I I can't yeah, I can't imagine my life, never mind the things that I create without friendship being at the core of that work. So I think I don't know if I'm making things because they're necessary or if I'm just responding 
to the resources that I find myself with. So, yeah. Manny, I think you said um, you don't see yourself as a activist, but um, as an audience, I can see a sense of activism in your work. Do you think the responsibility or urgency you feel to make work or do community organizing have anything to do with the distortion or omission of history of communities deemed unimportant by the dominant culture? Yeah, I don't know why that is, but yeah, I don't really, it's true. I don't ever think of myself as an activist. I guess it's because I don't even know. I guess I can see, yeah, like if you're not the first one to say it, right? Um, I don't know what it is, but history is something I'm very interested in and the erasure of histories. And oh, someone's calling me. Oh, hold on. Okay, no worries. Hello? Uncle Danny. Uncle Danny. Hey. I'm just recording something, sweetie. Can I call you back? Can I, can I just show you something? Yeah. Can you hear my niece? Yes, we can. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> <laughs> we swapped faces. You swapped faces. You want to see what with me and Uncle Cam? Uncle Cam. Uncle Cam's yeah. there. <laughs> They're swapping faces. I know that app. It's so hilarious. <laughs> Why your nose looks so big? Say hello to the people. Uh, you're picking your nose. <laughs> I have long hair. I look so weird. You don't look weird, sweetie. But I do have to go, okay? I'll call you back. Okay. Okay, love you. Bye-bye. She's always calling or is there when I'm recording something. So <laughs> she it's loves the cutest to thing talk. that's ever happened in the history of time. So it happens um, all the time. That was very sweet. And it's nice to break it up with some just like kids laughter and yeah. Family. But um I can't even remember what the question was now. Maybe what was it? History? Yeah. yeah History's a thing. Yeah, like um whether activism. Yeah, activism. Like what is what is act what even is that? <laughs> I don't know, you know. I think like you know, like my auntie Cece Point and Mary Point and and also uh, so much family. Like it's kind of just I've I've kind of just like my mom and others like friends different relatives I just sort of get like got pulled into it you know and I think it's because Musqueam has done a lot of a lot of it you know and so I think it's because it's just like a big part of who we are I guess you could say in that aspect it is at a necessity and that may be why I don't feel like I'm an activist because there's so many people doing this and I would feel irresponsible by saying that to me because I'm not someone that um, I'm more of a supporter quite often 
in my artwork, it looked, you know, I included in my artwork, but in terms of the more direct action and direct stuff, I'm more of a supporter as someone that's still learning. Yeah, I guess that's why. Um, it is necessity, you know, huge necessity. I think sometimes I feel like I've had to work my whole life to learn the little, 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 little bit of pieces I know about where I come from and where my family comes from and who we are and work my whole life and probably will work the rest of my life for that. And so it, it's not, it's, it's necessity, but it's also just sort of like, a, it, it, it brings me life. I guess I could say I activate myself that way. Here we are talking about the self, but yeah, it, it becomes like a way to, to, to really activate myself as well, to give me a life. Um, and so for me, it just feels like I'm living life. It doesn't feel like I'm doing anything important, but uh, necessity and it's a lot of work <laughs> to know where you come from and who you are. And then on top of that, where other people come from and who others are. But I encourage everyone to go on that journey. Let's talk about um, something present in both of your work or research, trauma. There have been overwhelming narratives of indigenous people and unhoused folks being traumatized, but not as much attention paid on their ability to heal and strong sense of community. What kind of space does trauma resistance and healing hold in your work? You go, Angela. The big old questions. Um, yeah, I can go. Um, I, I think there's lots of different ways to answer this question, but I've been writing and, and scholaring about um, trauma a lot these days, and especially the history of, of trauma or like how certain people have thought about it. Um, lots of old dead white guys, Freud et al., Freud and folks. Um, Long story short, I've been thinking about it and I have some thoughts about how it shapes some of the decisions that I make and stuff that I do, concerns that I have. So maybe I can share just some of that. I think that a lot of my thoughts here are kind of about the category of the victim um, and victimhood. And I think that's a really important but controversial um, like kind of term, trope, figure, um, that, that attachment to victimhood is something that I feel like I see happening in my community. And I don't say that just in a, you know, pointing fingers at others. I can see it in myself too, talking about the self. Um, but it's a very, it's a very insidious idea. And I don't mean that in a necessarily like only bad way. I just mean like it, it can get into places that you don't expect it to be. And all of a sudden there it is. Yeah, one, one thing that I guess I wanted to point out is just what I've been thinking about as like a little bit of a loop between violence and victimhood or in the opposite order, whichever. But so this is the thing is the victim, the category of the victim is totally bound up with our understanding of what it means to be traumatized at this point. Like if you're not a victim, then how can you be traumatized? And even if you use the language of survivorhood, some people say, right, I'm not a, I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor like fine cool 
that's a thing you're a survivor but the whole point is that you've survived something get at some point in a super basic way if you're a survivor you're the victim of violence at, at one point um so that's kind of like that may not be true for everyone but by and large it's kind of the common sense logic behind our current conversations around trauma and the result of that is that in order for your trauma to be valid to be recognized to be considered real you have to have some sort of relationship to victimhood a lot of the time and for many people um, including not limited to but including Japanese Canadians what that looks like is just a straight up assertion of victimhood. I suffered this, so I deserved that. I we suffered this, but we deserve that. Um, and those kinds of assertions are almost totally like philosophical. They're based off of an ethical principle, and we don't live entirely philosophical lives. Like we need food and shelter and community and and so on. So when you put those claims, I suffered this, so I deserve that, in a context of the real world which is material and, and physical um, things get a little complicated because one group's claims are frequently at odds with another group's claims and dear community speaks about that a little bit in the context of the japanese canadian downtown east side communities but it's something that plays out in lots of different uh, places for lots of different people and basically the question becomes like, who's the most victimized? Who has survived the most, the worst violence? Or in other words, whose trauma is the most valid? And then usually one or two things happens. Either a battle plays out and people argue about who's like got more trauma or the battle doesn't play out, but tr everyone's trauma gets flattened into the same thing. It's like, oh, it's, that's a, kind of like a school teacher pacifying approach of like, well, you're your pain is valid and your pain is valid and your pain is valid and like they may be valid but it doesn't make them the same and so I guess what I'm trying to do is kind of think about try to see both in theory and in practice because I do think practice gets a lot of points but theory is important too the way we think thought is important um, but I would love to figure out how to move towards something that allows us to recognize some of the stuff we've been through and the way it lingers without just either pitting people against each other or subsuming a whole vast array of different people into just this like homogenous mass of the same oppressedness everyone's trauma is trauma is trauma is trauma and i, I don't think that's super useful either so i'd like to get out of that and i think regardless of the kind of work that I'm doing, whether it's art or writing or um, scholarship, I feel like that's something, that's like a through line where I, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm trying to figure that out, but it's very difficult. There's a lot of really powerful forces that keep us in that either flatten everyone's trauma into the same thing or pit people against each other mode. Um, I'm convinced there, there must be an alternative and I'm determined to devote some energy to finding it, but it's kind of what I've been thinking about when it comes to trauma and stuff I spend my time doing. Yeah, you presented two extremes. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, like I, I'm a very non-binary person and I, I describe that in, in many ways. And I think what's helpful for me is, is to, to always sort of think beyond 
binary thinking as well beyond the like black and white uh and it's it's often because I feel like this thinking that way and like, it's gotta be this way. It's gotta be that way. It's really like wreaked havoc in my life. So I'm always trying to balance things out. This is one I've also thought a lot about Angela, that these, these extremes. And like I said, we live in this chaotic world, but pretty much everyone can make a claim to being uh, either traumatized something or victimized by something or, Pretty much everyone. I, I do believe the world is so chaotic right now. Almost anyone can is, express some form of trauma. And it is our understandings of trauma that have gotten to be quite expansive, I'll say. I think a long time ago, tra- trauma was not necessarily viewed the same way it is today. Um, That's, yeah, 100%. Sorry, I'm interrupting. I'm trying to. Agree. It's okay. It, it's so true, though. Like It's so true. I think, and, and that's where I think things got a little messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not, and, and if we're going to, I think it is true that we live in a very traumatic time, of course, and have for quite some time now, decades. Um, but it, seeing, seeing where things are different and, and that's what's important. And it's not to be competitive, but to sort of, weigh those on a scale and then find where to move forward from that. But I think a lot about denial. Um, Denial, you know, is a defense mechanism. And I think it's very telling when you speak to individuals, many, I've known many, that maybe necessarily aren't even familiar with the ideas of them being a victim, them being a survivor, them being traumatized. But you know it's there, you know? I know my like all the shit I've been through in my life, I, I don't really, there were moments where I wouldn't view that as a, a, a trauma or something that survived or, I was just living my life, you know? It was that denial and I think that is a really significant piece to this puzzle that we're forgetting about. I think if you can claim your your victimhood, if you can claim that you've been traumatized, you know, if you can name it, I think if you can speak it, you talk about it, you've already gotten to a really big step, you know. It's those that, that aren't there that are sort of disillusioned, if you will. That's concerning. And those people, I think about the most. The people that are disillusioned, they can't see things because they, they've, they've had to be in that sense of denial to survive. That's, that's serious stuff, right? So yeah, I the think power of a- denial, and even me, there are moments where I, I actively knowingly go into denial because that's the best way to get through things sometimes just be like, Mm -hmm. Oh, not right now. (laughs) And then just like, okay, you know, it's there, but you just like, gotta gotta get it out. You know, I kind of will open the window, but okay, time to go. And then I'll just pretend it's not there and keep doing my life. But I know it's there still. Yeah. What a cluster of things. And I agree that the, 
working binaries are not so helpful. Sometimes they can be useful, at least for me, to get my thoughts going, but I'm, I'm always trying to work my way out of them. I find that they, they can be traps a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely can be, but sometimes they seeing those binaries is what brings us to a new resolution. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's what's so helpful about it, you know. Yeah, the oscillation and and the in my body I know that binaries they don't sit right. There's something that feels off that doesn't seem like it can be the whole truth when you try to sit with a binary for me. So I appreciate what you pointed out about um, about those different uh, kind of like trauma trajectories, Manny. Manuel, your practice is always transforming, but one of the constants I noticed so far is the deliberate decision of leaving something out or making the audience look for clues to form their own understandings about the work. Can you tell us more about how and why you first came to this strategy? Well, I think it's it's the 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 I don't know. It's easy for me to to let people bring their own messages to the work often, um, and that's where I find most interest is what I don't see. Uh, I. I I don't like the idea of like, I'm the artist and this is what this means. This very prescriptive notion of what art is. I find it kind of empty. It's very selfish. I find self-absorbed, you know, what other people see is, is very important. And that guides me in my work usually. Um, and leaving things out, we were talking about trauma and I'm just making this connection now, but we were just talking about trauma and I'm not going to go into it, but yes, I've, I've definitely had some very traumatic times in my life, you know, many <laughs> traumatic times in my life that I think most people would be shocked if they heard that some of the things that I've been through. Um, and, and, you know, I've really cared for that and it wasn't public. And that's, that's sort of like understanding of, of this, keeping things to myself and, and, if there's just like a little thing in the work that I know what it is, or maybe these other people recognize it, I really, really find a lot of fulfillment in that. So I think it speaks to a lot to our time as well. I think in many ways we live in the, with social media, we live in this world where people are like, I feel myself, I feel this is my opinion, oversharing. It's okay for us to, to keep things to ourselves, right? I quite enjoy that. And I think when we think about trauma, preserving that, you know, this not going in, not re-traumatizing oneself or, or re-traumatizing others. That's so important, you know? So I think that's part of it for me is, is knowing there's like, oh, I know what this is. And that's for me to do some healing through my work. I want to do a little bit of healing here, but I don't want everyone to know what it is because then I don't, I don't want to be re-traumatized. And also, you know, a lot of discussion recently about performing trauma, which I have a whole bunch of thoughts about. Um, but that's, at the same time, I do think in many ways, people need to share and they need to, to let people know about what they've been through 
and that gives them a real sense of purpose and meaning and fulfillment in their lives. And I've done that. I've been that person. And I think it's so important to let, to listen, to hear, and like I said, to walk beside people that are doing that and make sure that happens. Um, I also think if there's, if the potential of my art, of the work, the, the artwork and leaving things out, I think that makes the work stronger. I think if every message or meaning or uh, material is all very obvious and given out to everyone, I think it kind of waters down what the potential of the work is. You know, if everything's right there on paper and you can read it all and it's like, oh, that's that and that's what that is. It really waters down the message, I believe, that I'm trying to give out. But it also waters down people's, you know, I, I feel like their ability to bring their own things to it. But yeah, that's it for me. I think there's also like, I don't, I don't know if this is too boring and academic, but I feel like it's worth mentioning that like leading the way in terms of refusal have been like many indigenous thinkers, including scholars uh, who are responding, if not specifically to trauma, but at least to pain, then to pain and kind of like this humanitarian impulse to like collect pain, store pain narratives. Eve Tech calls them pain narratives. Um, painters? I think it was maybe Eve Tech and Kaywin Yang both uh, wrote that book chapter, but it's been something that is happening, I guess, in the arts, but also in terms of like knowledge production. There's some things that can't remember if it's Eve Tech quotes Audra Simpson. There's some slippage in my brain there, but um, there's some things about which the Academy does not need to know is a line that I'm remembering. It reminds me of kind of some of your uh, positioning that you're describing, Manny. Yeah, the Academy doesn't need to know. I think it, yeah. you can come from a place of not knowing things and still respect it mm -hmm. and still like honor it and those people just because, you know, there has to be some work to earn things too, right? So if knowledge, I'm speaking about knowledge, right? Like, I don't want to just give everything away all the time. I, I, I will say people probably think I give away too much um, at times. But yeah, like you, there, there are some things that people need to earn and need to work for. And, mm -hmm. you know, because it's extractive, you know, yeah. people's life experiences become yeah. extracted especially yeah. a lot of the time in the downtown east side especially but yeah you know it, it's it's there's a question there and i think a lot about you know i i, I did some work at the Budsey building with an a, amazing group of people and we're doing these workshops with a, a friend and and co-worker luca we did some exhibition we did publications and it's all I always was trying to remember that like this is not necessarily my project I don't want to be steering things too much and really just sort of like uplift them and and recognize you know how amazing they are by stepping back um, not taking credit for it you know letting them dictate how they want to be represented and that's done through conversa lengthy conversations eating together, making art together, walking together, talking on the phone together. 
it's a long process, but when you do that, you, you, you let them kind of lead the way and I'm not extracting their trauma, you know? Yes, they're at this building in the downtown east side, but that's irrelevant when I present their work and I work with them to show their artwork. They could be from who knows where. Doesn't even matter at that point. They got good work, they got good work. So I asked like, what are some things you want to say? We're talking about Powell Street and, and the downtown east side and is do way to start your tomato seedlings. Just let summer be and follow in every way. So it is too late. Oh, don't plant them. Never mind. It's over. But I'm here to tell you it's not. <laughs> you can plant other stuff. Doesn't have to be tomato seedlings. It's not too late. <laughs> what a perfect way to end. It's not yeah. too late. You could always hit record again. Yeah. information about entanglement and the list of resources for information mentioned in this episode, such as the link to watch their community or visit Musqueam place names, please visit simulationmedia.com slash podcast. In the next episode of Entanglement, Host Mina Lee talks to sisters and filmmakers Ying Wang and Jie Wang. They share lived stories of one sister's eating disorders and another's heartfelt witnessing in their film Sisters. Their collaborative storytelling weaves together complex issues of mental health, identity, cultural and physical symptoms, and the healing journey. This episode is lead produced by me, Rebecca Wang, Wang Chenyi, with assistance from Yang Zhu Chang and Mina Li. Editing and music by Lei Wa. Entanglement is produced by Symbolution Media Arts Society and made possible with funding support from the Government of British Columbia. Thank you for listening. <laughs>